If you've been with us for the past several weeks, we're working through a sermon series on uh, the book of 1 John. Now, this is a letter he wrote as a follow-up to the gospel of John that he'd previously sent out. And one of the things we said early on in the series that there was a few words that were going to keep coming up over and over and over. One of these, as we've already seen, is that topic of love. The word love, it appears 48 times in this letter of John's another 57 times in his other writings. And that's not just because it's his favorite word in the universe. It's because it's the central and defining mark of what it means to actually be a Christian. Now, you remember back in John's gospel account, if you've read that, he described Jesus as having um, really put a bow on the 613 laws of the Old Testament. Um, It words it actually this way in one place. All the law and prophets are summed up in this love. John's gospel, John 13, verse 34, 35, you're going to see it up on the screens. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. The defining mark of what it means to be a Christian is this idea of love. And that's because that as, as we ponder God's love towards us, it can only well up in us and overflow. It can, if, if, if we're really participating in the love of God, love will come out of us. It's like putting a Mentos in a Coke. It's going to do something. If we've got the legitimate Mentos it's in legitimate Coke. It's actually going to overflow. And you don't want the fake Mentos. Um, those are mothballs. Don't, we don't want fake love of God either. If we're not seeing love come out of us, it could be that we've not really participated in that real love of God. The true love will cause love to overflow out of us. And it's this love that, by which God has loved us. Elsewhere in John's Gospel... Uh, John 3, um, John 3, 16, we know this verse, very famous verse. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the example of love that serves as a catalyst for love in us. Now, I say all of this because it it really sets up where we're heading this morning in our text. We're going to be picking it up in in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, John has just been speaking about the character of love that Christians are to be marked by, and now this morning we're going to take a look at a character of love that he does not want Christians to be marked by. So open up your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, while you do that, let me pray. Father, let's commit this time to you and, and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and just indwell our service, ignite the words of Christ, help our eyes to see what's been right before us, or what is right before us, maybe that we've never seen before. Holy Spirit, as I've already been praying this morning, I'm desperately in need of you. I'm very fallible, as I've already demonstrated. Uh, I don't want my words or my foibles or any fumble that I might make to get in the way, so I just pray for your Spirit's anointing and empowerment to preach the Word. Thank you for the Word of God, and, and, and just thank you that it's It's sufficient to train us up in all righteousness, so we pray it would do that this morning. Commit this time to you, Father God, in the name of your Son, by the power of the Spirit, amen. So 1 John 2, verse 15, and on we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. Now stop. We'll just take that verse to begin with. If you're not um, yet asleep, you may have caught that a seeming contradiction just seemed to take place. We just read that God so loved the world, and now we're being told to not love the world. What's going on? Isn't this a contradiction, you may be thinking. Well, there's a few things we need to know in order to explain this. One is that the way that we read John 3.16 might not be the way to read John 3.16. Let me explain this. When we read, for God so loved the world... We might think that the word translated as so refers to the degree in which God loves the world. So to put it differently like this, um, you might think, man, I so wish the theater served popcorn during Josh's sermons. I do too. This, is, this way we use so, is, it refers to the degree in which we wish or love. But that's not what's going on here. John isn't talking about the degree to which God loves, but the manner in which God loves. Given the way that we use the word so now, perhaps a different translation um, might make more sense. Maybe if we understood it as God loved the world, so he gave his son. The Holman uh, Christian, the Holman, pardon me, Holman Christian Standard Bible, I don't read that one obviously, um, but it, translate, it translates it this way. It says, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his son for it. The so here is not referring to the, the degree, but the manner in which he loved. Likewise, it's doing the same in our text this morning. When John says, do not love the world, he's not saying that we should hate people or that we should really hate the earth and take it out on it. That's not what he's saying. He's not referring to the degree. He's referring to the manner that we love the world. And so the second thing we need to know if we're going to understand this and for this verse to make sense, um, we're going to have to properly understand two words that John is using here, love and world. Love and world. Now, in ancient Greek, some of you may know there were six different words that could be used for love. So if we're going to really pick up what John's putting down here, we've got to get at what word is he talking about. It's not just open a dictionary and get a definition. We need to find out what Greek word he, could use, he used. So you can do this yourself. You can go to blueletterbible.org, um, pull up your verse, and it'll show you which Greek word. I've done that work for us. It's the Greek word agapau. Agapau. That's what John is, the word in Greek John is using that is translated into English as love. And now, agapau, what we need to know is that this is a verb. A verb meaning that it is a call to action. It's a type and quality of love that's not an emotion but it's an action initiated by an intentional choice. It's not an emotional response. It's not based on the degree of something's loveliness or how great something is. It's an intentional choice on our part. So John, we could word it differently. He's saying, don't willfully act in love or affection towards the world. But how you understand agapao also depends on what object is being loved. So to put it differently, and to use the Greek word, hopefully this doesn't confuse anyone, how you agapow depends on what is being agapowed. I don't think that's a real word, but hopefully you get it. Do not, so what, what's being agapowed? Verse 15, do not love the world. 
It's a second Greek word. Um, cosmos is the word that's translated as world. And there's a wide range of meaning. Um, and, and to be fair, John uses this word um, differently in different contexts. So in John 3.16, when it says God doesn't love the world, that's before God does, God so loved the world. That's in reference to people. When John uses it here in 1 John 2, it's in reference to a system, an ideology, a force that's organized in hostility against God. Put more specifically, when, God, or when John commands believers to not love the world, he's referring to earthly goods, the earthly advantages, the earthly pleasures, the, the earthly adornments that we're so prone to partake of. So to summarize this, just short and sweetly, as a bit of a nod um, to Eugene Peterson, who passed away this week, if you know Eugene Peterson, passed away Monday. Um, I want to read how he translates this passage in the message. Now, the message shouldn't serve as your primary Bible. It can be useful, though, from time to time on the side. I would recommend a good word-for-word translation of the Bible, like the ESV. It's principally what we use here. But I just want to, I want to read this from the message because I thought it was helpful. He translates verse 15 this way, and he says, Do not love the world's ways. Do not love the world's goods. Do not love the world's ways. Do not love the world's goods. Why not? Let's go back to the ESV. Read verse 16 and 17 with me. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John opens with a command. Then he proceeds to define three things that he's referring to when he talks about the world. These are up on the screen behind me. Three things. The internal desires of the flesh, the external desires of our eyes, and the pride of of life. It was right there in the text. This first phrase, the desires of the flesh, it's in reference to our natural appetites, our hungers, that kind of that craving that originates inside of us, our sinful internal tendencies to seek our fulfillment, our enjoyment, our pleasure, our so for, or our satisfaction, and so forth in things outside of God. It's that internal Disney narrator in your ear that says, Follow your heart. We might wonder, though, how, how can we act against that? Isn't that disingenuous? Isn't that like ignoring who we are? Isn't that not being true to who we are? Just two quick comments on that. Remember, John's commanded us to not agapau, that verb action. It refers to um, willfully choosing. He's telling us not to... He's, pardon me, he's not telling us to not have desire. He's telling us to not act according to it. To not willfully act in accordance with our carnality, our carnal desires. Because you and I are not just carnal beings. We're also spiritual beings. And this is the second thing I'd say to that is that we're spirit. We're spirit and we're wrong if we think that that spirit man is fed in the same way as the flesh is. We've been given a new character, we've been given a new heart, but there exists some of that oldness in us too, and there's an opposition, and we need to learn to feed and strengthen and grow in that spirit man, and to put to death the desires that would tell us that we're only flesh, and to live only according to our flesh. 
Matthew 4, we walked through this at great length over the summer, but in Matthew 4, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, because we're not just physical man, we're spirit man. Do not live according to um, the desires of the flesh, and then he goes on to say, do not live according to, or the world, and um, the thing he's referring to with the world, pardon me, is the desire of the eyes. Um, the desire of the eyes, we can think of it this way. They're the things that we look to outside of us to satisfy that internal hunger. They're the things my eye finds and collects to satisfy that inner desire. Now, he says eyes in reference to these external desires because the way they get in is usually through our eyes. The things we look at, as the hunter-gatherers we are, we run around and we look for things to take care of our spiritual appetite. But remember, um, back in Genesis 3, the, right before Eve took the fruit and ate of it, and Adam took the fruit and ate of it, it says that she looked and saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It came in through the eye. David, I mean, you can see this all throughout the scripture in connection with temptation to sin. David up on his rooftop, naked, naked Bathsheba next door, what does it say? He saw that she was very beautiful to look at. Preceding anything else, him taking somebody else's wife, him killing a man in order to have her, started with him looking in through his eyes. It starts as a desire in our flesh, gets fed by the desires of our eyes, and John commands us not to agapow, not to love, not to, not to willfully seek these things out. He's saying, don't give in to these internal desires of our heart. Stop looking to temporal things as if they can take care of the eternal. And then the third thing he says, stop measuring and defining yourselves by the things that you've accumulated to satisfy your desires. Up on the screen, the third thing is the pride of life. The third thing John's referring to by the world is that pride of life. Now you'll notice, John uses that word life again. We've been seeing that word come up a lot in the preceding text. We've done a lot of work with it um, in reference to the life that Jesus came to give us, that character and quality of life that was only God's to give. We, we talked about that word zoe. But he's not talking about that kind of life. He's actually using an entirely different Greek word here. It's the Greek word bios. And that refers to the temporal life of the world. Jesus came to give us abundant life that we begin to participate in now. He's contrasting that with a different type of life, bios. Bios, the life that is enjoyed purely here. Now, I don't know what translation you have. Um, the pride of life in some of your Bibles, it might be... Um, translated as pride in possessions, uh, uh, pride of life, different things, pride in achievements. Uh, but at its core, it's addressing this propensity to feel more or less according to how much we've stacked up. Taking pride in how well we've done here. It's the desire to feel important. It's the belief that um, things are going to take care of that soul hunger. It's our boasting in our lifestyles and the subtle elitism that creeps in on all of our lives, if we're honest. We measure the physical. We, we grow the physical. We feed the physical, but we're starving that spirit man. 
We strive for bios instead of zoe. I want to ask us, just before we move on, as a church, as individuals, what are we, what are we desiring? Do we want that life immediate or that life eternal? On a guttural level, what, what are we craving? Now, even decades into discipleship to Jesus, these things will linger on in us often. A lot of them will die and they'll go away, but there's always going to be that flesh tugging at us, those desires that we'll have to resist, the ones that we have to not agapow, not love, not willfully choose to obey. Do you know what those are in your life? They're there. What... What desires, what cravings of your flesh are you actively ignoring? How's that going? Do we recognize this? This is what John's trying to point out to us. There's that temptation and it's there. Are we aware of it? If we don't know or you can't think of anything, Maybe let us, let me just ask us a second question. What desires do our eyes have? What we feed ourselves will reveal what hungers we have beneath the surface. So what are you feeding yourself? You know, our palates, they'll evolve over time. We'll get more sophisticated with this. But if you take a look at your life, chances are, I, I think that you'll be able to see what that baseline hunger is. I was thinking about this for myself, and um, from, a, from a young guy, I grew up racing bikes, and I just had a mad penchant to want to acquire different bicycles, because I felt defined by these bikes, and I would get one, and then I'd need something else, and that eventually grew into the point where I started to collect Volkswagens, and I mean, it's gone way beyond that, um, but there's a deep thing in my heart that I'm trying to take care of. There's a desire of the flesh that I go out with my eyes and try to fill, I know what that is. That's it's a, a seeking to be justified and feel validated by this. It's that pride of life. Look at how big my stack is. What are the underlying desires of your flesh? What are the things that your eye is telling you will satisfy you? Now, it might not even be a physical thing. I was thinking, I was meditating, I was praying for you guys yesterday up at Rockridge. I took a canoe out on my own. Um, I was really weird canoes. There was no seat, so I was sitting on the tail. The front end of the canoe was way up, and I was paddling around um, this lake by myself, praying for you guys, praying like, God, just show me what in my life is there, that baseline hunger. And I'm, I'm kind of at the far end of the lake, and there's a soccer game going on, and somebody punted the ball out into the lake by accident. So the guys start yelling, duel, come get our ball. And so I, I booked it over, and I'm not, I, I was a little proud about how I was canoeing. I was doing so well. And um, one of the guys I know, he's like, Duel, you're like real legitimate in the flesh bush man. And, and I was like, I am. And so I paddled over. I grabbed this ball. I throw it up onto shore. And uh, I was just gloating in this for a second. I was like thinking all these cocky things I was going to say. The ball hits a rock, bounces back in, lands beside me. And I'm like, I got this. So I paddled this canoe backwards with the nose way up in the air. And as I reach over to grab the ball, flunk into the water, phone in my pocket, 
heavy boots, it's okay, uh, jacket on, wool sweater, and everyone's laughing at me. And here I am, I'm trying to collect this, and God's like, you prayed for it. You wanted to know what's going on in your heart. Terrible. Um, which life do we want more? What are those hungers? What life are we craving? Zoe or the bios? Do our actions reflect that? Do our thoughts reflect that? Does how we spend our money reflect that, church? Does how we spend our time reflect that? God, from time to time, he's going to lovingly put you in the lake so that you will get a glimpse of what's going on beneath the surface. Um, read with me verse 16, 17. I lost where I was on my notes. My apologies. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Now, just because I've already quoted him, I'd love to just read how Eugene Peterson translates this as well. He says this, that's how he translates it. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. John, John laid out three things that he meant by the world. Now he's going to talk about three reasons Christians shouldn't love the world. These are up on the screen as well. The first one, love of the world. It squeezes out love for the Father. To make an analogy of this, um, 12 years ago when I was getting married to my wife, if in the weeks leading up to our marriage, I heard her making plans with her girlfriends to go out wine touring or like on some like mini weekend getaway to Whistler, at the same time our wedding was supposed to be taking place and our honeymoon, I might have to go to her and go like, what are you doing? What is it that you want? Who do you love more? One of these plans has got to squeeze out the other plan at some point here, Rebecca. Who do you love more? Love of the world will squeeze out love of the Father. And love for the Father, if we indeed have it, it will squeeze out love for the world. What do we want more? To add a little more incentive, he, he adds a second thing. He, a second reason Christians shouldn't love the world. All earthly investments are headed for a crash. So we have a number of people here who um, work in the tech industry. So if I was to say to you, um, hey, a piece of software is going to be out of date next week. It's, it's going to disappear. You wouldn't continue to develop that thing you've been working on. You'd cease to write code for it. You wouldn't spend liters of eye blood rotoscoping frames of a movie that the director has already told you has been cut or for a section of the film that's not actually going to appear in the final. You would stop working for that. Maybe to use an analogy that hits home for all of us, we all hate and love the housing market here. If an industry insider came to you and said, hey, um, two weeks from now, Bank of Canada is hiking the interest rate to 15%. 
Oh, and by the way, the new government we just elected in is, is actually going to put a, a complete stop on all foreign home ownership. We would freak out because we're not just headed for a bubble pop. It would be a bubble explosion, and we'd be selling off as fast as we could. Get, and, and most of our investments, I mean, stats show most people's wealth is in their home. So this, the, co- the consequence would be devastating. It'd be bankrupt. There'd just be complete pandemony. If we believe what John is saying is true, can I ask, are we holding on to this life still like there's all there is, this is all there is? If we wouldn't continue on in any of those other situations, why do we feel that propensity to continue on in this? Do we believe it? If someone were to look at our life, would they see investment in the eternal life, in our life? Does it look to the outside watching world or even to those closest to us like we're selling off stock or buying it? The world's passing away along with its desires. Paul said in 1 Corinthians um, 7, I'm just going to paraphrase this, he said the time's short, so from now on, let those who buy something live as if it's not theirs to keep. Let those who use the things of the world as if they're not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is going to pass away. Jesus, in, in Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We shouldn't love the world because the love of the world squeezes out love of the Father. Secondly, all these earthly investments are going to crash. But thirdly, lastly, the life that Jesus gives us is going to deliver forever. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here John is again drawing us back to the quality of life that Jesus came to give us, life eternal. John 10, 10, I've come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. That abundant, never stopping, overflowing, never gonna stop paying off life. That's what he calls us to. He's saying, don't love this world. Love that one. Don't invest here. That's all going away. Love that. Don't fall for this world. Fall for that one. The world's passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, what I didn't tell you at the beginning, we we still have another nine verses to go through. So um, if you still so want some popcorn, maybe grab that. Read with me, verse 18 on. I'm going to read through this quick, and we'll try to do it um, as quickly as we can while still doing the text justice. Children, he goes on to say, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that They are all not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 
Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is of no lie, just as he's taught you, abide in him. Stay in that life, he's saying. Now, notice, once again, John calls them children. This is, uh, I mean, he's old. He's probably over 100 as he's writing this. So he's literally, everyone on earth is younger than him. But he's also speaking affectionately as somebody who's like a spiritual father to them. And he's warning them, this is the last hour. He's concerned. This is the last hour. The market's about to crash. Pull out now. But how, how should we understand this last hour? I mean, I did the math, guessing he was about 100 as he wrote this. There's been about 17 million hours that have happened since John wrote this. Either John's dead wrong, or maybe we need to understand this a little differently. The last hour here, it, um, it speaks of a period of time that ushers in the termination of all things as revealed, uh, as God's final salvation gets revealed to us. It's referring to the closeness and the proximity of the kingdom and how imminent the arrival is. So let me, let me explain it this way. We might hear last hour and think of it linearly, as we think of time linearly. And so when he says last hour here and we're still over here, you go, clearly there's been more than an hour. But if we think of it this way, as John's saying, all of time has been progressing to this point and time took a left. And you and I now, we're standing on the edge of time. We're in the last hour, the last inch of space, and we're walking along this edge until the new eternity breaks in. We're right on the edge of it. It's the last hour, and it has been since Christ came. At any moment, the whole thing's going to slough away from underneath us. It's the last hour. Matthew 24, Jesus said, nobody knows the hour or the day exactly that it's going to happen. So John doesn't, he's not saying this is the literal last hour. He's saying it's right here and at any moment it's going to go. Matthew 24, 25 deals with this extensively. You can go read this on your own, but there's a, a parable Jesus told in Matthew 25 of the 10 virgins waiting for the end to come. Some of them, they don't keep oil in their lamp. They're not ready for when it happens and, and they don't get to enter in. This is the warning John has. He says, it's right there. It's about to come. Be ready. Why? Because not only is it the last hour, not only at any moment is the bottom going to slough out from underneath us, but the Antichrist is coming and many have come, he says. Now, you're probably thinking, what the heck is going on here? Um, you have full permission to think that. Um, this word antichrist, it only appears here in John's writing. He's the only guy in the Bible to use the term. Um, but if you're, even if you're not part of church, you've probably heard this word antichrist. Maybe it's like some Swedish metal band you grew up listening to. And you, but maybe you're thinking like, wait a second, John's telling us some mythical horned creature's gonna show up? Like, nah, you're getting a little crazy preacher. 
This, this term antichrist, it's, it's, it's actually the Greek word antichristos. Now I want to explain it just for a second because I think it'll be helpful. It's, um, what's unique about this term is that it's both personal and impersonal, singular and plural. If that makes no sense to you, let me explain it this way. This word antichristos is like two words combined, it's, and I'll, I'll use these two, communism and communist. It's like the meaning of communism and communist put together. So communism can refer to that overarching ideology. Capital C communist might refer to bigger leaders, guys like Mussolini, Stalin, and the such. Um, or anyway, I won't make a political joke. And, or a small C communist could refer to somebody who follows this ideology. So antichrist can refer to that overarching ideology while at the same time referring to a leader that might one day come or maybe has already come. John says, once coming, but many antichrists are still going to come. But it can also refer to many. Many others. Here, who are these? Well, verse 19, it says, they're the ones who went out from us. Verse 22, the ones who de that deny Jesus is the Christ, the rescuer. They deny even needing rescue. Verse 23, they're the ones who refuse to confess the lordship of Jesus. So John isn't just referring to bigwig global leaders in the forthcoming capital A Antichrist, whatever form that might take, but also the individuals who've walked away from the faith, those who have become ensnared in this love for the world that he was just talking about, enslaved to the pursuit of bios rather than zoe, enslaved to the desires of their flesh, to the desires and lusts of their eyes. They're those who have become more enamored by the things of life than the giver of life. They're those who scoff at the idea of needing rescue or needing a rescuer. They're the ones who have bought into the false promises of the anti-Christian system. They've surrendered the lordship of their life to something other than Jesus. That's who John's referring to as the antichrists who will go out. People who have bought into the overarching ideology of antichrist. Sure, church. Can I urge us to examine our lives and take a look where we might have bought into this lie as well? John says... There is antichrists coming. We're on the edge. We're on the edge so time might slough out from underneath us, but right on that edge lies a deceiver who wants to convince us that the bottom isn't going to fall out. Where are we buying in to the deception? Now, we likely we have all sorts of plans in place for getting more in this life working for promotions, getting education, putting money away, maybe for future home ownership or the hope that our home's going to double in price and we're going to get to retire in Costa Rica, uh, our hope in our investment portfolios. we got plans for retirement. Do we have any plans in place at all for getting more of the life that God gave us? Are we only planning for this because we're going this way. If we're going with Christ, we're going over the edge. Are we planning for that at all? Are we strategizing for that at all? 
What step, as we close, could I challenge or could we challenge ourselves to make? What could we do today to lift our eyes from being merely here to being more there? How do we practically do that? There, there is life available in Christ, a life so good that John just keeps doubling back on this. He's going to keep doing it, too, all throughout this book. This is his point. He wants us to participate in this life that Jesus came to give us. He's presenting these tests, not just so we can go, ah, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, like duck, 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 damned. That's not what's happening. He wants us to see if we're not participating in it, because he wants us to. He's not trying to shame us. He's not trying to condemn us. He's trying to get us excited. I write these things to you, verse 26, about those who are trying to deceive you. Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. What are we living for? What are we planning for? What are we filling our vision with? What are we most excited about, church? We're going to respond in a few different ways. We're just going to reflect on what Jesus did in order to purchase this life for us by joining together in singing. The band's going to come up. We're going to have um, couples on either side with communion. This is to not just commemorate, but remember, celebrate, and come back every week. Take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice according to your conscience in order to remember Jesus died to purchase new life for me. The record of wrong that was stored up, all of my guilt, all of that junk that I'd done, Jesus took to the cross and paid for. We come forward and we celebrate that. If you're not a believer, don't come forward and take communion. Stay in your seat. Take Jesus today. If there's something in your life, if you, if you want prayer for anything, if there's something that's coming to mind, if there's um, a way that you've been indulging in this life that you want to confess and repent of. We've got a couple in the corner that wants to meet with you, pray with you. I'd be in the back, would be honored to do the same. But maybe you want prayer this morning just to go, you know, Holy Spirit, would you show me where I'm living for this life more than that one? Would you show me how I could practically partake more of that today? We've got a couple that would love to pray with you. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Jesus, I just want to thank you for coming to give us new life. Thank you for this warning. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for letting us know we're in the last hour. You're a God who's involved and cares, and we want more of you. I pray as a church that your Holy Spirit would come and just reveal these things to us, where we've been settling for too little, where we've been anchoring in this life and not the life to come, where we've been investing here, we've been looking for payoff here. Forgive us. Fill our vision with Christ. Delight us in this life to come, and we need you for this. And we know that you are our advocate, just as Christ is our advocate in heaven, and you long to do this work, so we invite you and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.